Uncaged. Uncaged. A show celebrating thought leadership from today's top business leaders. The program provides a voice to amazing executives from around the globe who are shaping the world of business today and mapping the path to the world of commerce tomorrow. And now, please welcome our host, Bant Breen, as we begin another Uncaged episode. Today, we're speaking with Eric Redding. Hey, Eric, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm very, very well. Eric is the Division VP for International Development at Apt Associates. We're going to talk a, a lot about what Eric is focusing on these days, which is heavily, heavily focused on the climate area. Apt Associates is a mission-driven global leader in research and program implementation in the fields of health, social, and environmental policy and international development. And I'm excited to talk to Eric more about the areas that he's focused on in the international development area, specifically the climate work. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself, Eric, and your career. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I came to global development from a, a very interdisciplinary background. I, I studied uh, uh, political science, geography, economics, um, history, culture, religion, and have really um, had the opportunity to work across a lot of different program areas in global development. And progressively, as I've gotten through my career, work on larger and larger and more ambitious um, challenges that the globe is facing, um, you know, whether that is in fighting poverty or dealing with access to uh, clean water and electricity, um, or, you know, how do economies grow and eliminate the barriers to, um, to economic growth. Um, and then and more recently, I've spent a, a whole lot of my attention on um, areas like um, how do health systems work and how do um, how do we, you know, as a whole society around the globe, um, tackle this enormous challenge of climate change that's in front of us. So I, I'd love to dig in a little bit more on that. I mean, tell me more about what you're working on in that area. Yeah, in uh, in climate specifically, um, one of the things that that I'm focused on is we have developed a lot of approaches for how to um, either mitigate climate change by you know, reducing the greenhouse gases that are getting to the atmosphere, um, obviously change to renewable electricity, um, reducing emissions from things like methane, um, and how to adapt. You know, how do we make sure that the world is more resilient to those um, extreme weather events, the droughts, the floods, the tornadoes, um, the wildfires that are are happening because of climate change. Um, so what I'm really focused on is now that we know what those solutions are, now that we've proven those out over the last couple of decades, how do we take those things to scale? Um, you know, if we've we've been able to successfully do something on a pilot basis, if we've successfully been able to do something that's a um, million dollar investment or millions of dollar investment, how do we take that to um, to billions of dollars to you know, nationwide programs rather than um, pilots to um, regional scale to global scale. Um, and I think that's a real challenge, you know, as the world really confronts the, the fact that we're likely to not make the 1.5 degree centigrade target, um, which means that the pace of climate change is faster than we hoped it would be. And we must urgently adapt 
while simultaneously making sure that we're um, increasing the pace of that mitigation as much as possible so we can at least hold within a, a 2% centigrade target. Um, so I've, I've been focused a lot on that. Much, much of that really means how do we mobilize the private sector? And that's something that APT has done a lot of work in over the years, um, whether that's in um, health systems or other areas. The public sector you know, always plays an important role, whether it's in uh, policy setting and regulations um, or in actual service delivery. But if you're really, really going to get to scale, you need to have alignment between what the public sector priorities and what the private sector priorities are. And I think where the climate conversation has really turned in the last um, few years is that incredibly essential role that the private sector plays in making sure that we're achieving what we need to achieve in climate is, is um, coming to the forefront. And we're recognizing that you know, government action will get us that far, but government action together with private sector action is going to get us the whole way of where we Yeah, need to go. and it, I think you've raised some really, really interesting points. I mean, certainly scale has always been a question mark. It's a question mark in almost every aspect of development, but in particular in this area where there has perhaps been a lot of uh, marketing spin unscaled efforts yeah. <laughs> perhaps and uh and now to really make those scaled is interesting i'm heartened by the fact that when i look out into the marketplace today you see a lot of leaders in business saying the right thing embracing the right thing you know you see publications people saying things at davos and etc but what's your feeling of where we really are and can we get back on track i think we're we're moving from a place where the dominant vibe ha has gone from, you know, what I would call greenwashing of making small steps to make yourself look friendly towards sustainability, you know, towards a place where companies and governments and others are really measuring themselves in a scientific way to see where they are and, and recognizing as they look in the mirror that, you know, significant changes in the way that, that we behave as you know, companies, governments, societies needs to change if we're really going to get to that sustainability. And that's that's beginning to make those investments because we are measuring it um, mm -hmm. in more realistic and, and scientific ways for the first time. And you're starting to see that that's getting locked into place, you know, through normative changes that um, are becoming more and more sticky in society. I'm actually really, really excited by something incredibly nerdy which is, cool. you know, within the world of accounting, there are a couple of like really critical standards. In the U.S., it's GAAP. In the rest of the world, it's IFRS. Mm -hmm. There was there's a board that recommends changes to the IFRS standards, which is essentially the rest of the world outside the U.S. and how accounting standards work. That board is essentially the the board of accountants. That it's like a parallel uh, uh, self-regulatory organization to IFRS. Mm -hmm. And they made a recommendation that non-financial disclosures um, relative to climate sustainability um, should be incorporated into mandatory disclosures under IFRS. Now, that's oh. something that, that most people don't follow, most people don't talk about. But if that happens, that means that in every financial statement for every company, you know, from the largest in the world down to the smallest, what is the impact that you're having on the planet? would be something that would have to be in that 
um, in that financial statement wow. in a way that's comparable across companies. And that starts to get us to a place where all of the things that we've talked about for years of the tragedy of the commons and the, you know, the, um, the fact that there is no economic consequence for doing environmental damage actually gets accounted for. I mean, um, it would be an incredible move. I understand why you're, you're nerding out on that one, because yeah. I look at the people, when we talk to individuals in the finance sector, they're trying to do things with ESG and trying to figure out how to employ ESG as an effective measure. But obviously, as you know, it's really spotty in how those kind of measures work today. And, and so as long more, as it's voluntary yeah. and there are multiple competing standards, it's not very meaningful. But yeah. the couple of things that have happened is A, the various standards for sustainability have begun to coalesce around each other. And there, there's an active movement to synchronize those, those various standards together into one and then put those into um, those non-financial disclosures. And that's where you know, the Davos level conversation is driving us towards that. And I think that's very exciting. I think you know, to be realistic about it, like accounting standards don't change quickly by design, yeah. like companies can't change the way they report yeah. in a minute. So anything that happens there is gonna happen over a three or four year period, but it's pretty clear that there's momentum towards that. And I think that's very exciting. But Let me ask you kind of a funny back. question. When the standards were put in place, Eric, uh, you know, the goals that probably was, were discussed in Glasgow and, and other places, yeah. was there any any er, uh, room for error in terms of some of those goals? Or is that one and a half percent pretty hard and fixed? Um, yeah. So, I mean, what the one and a half percent and two percent, which is sort of the backup goal, if you will. Yeah. I, I mean, it's really relative to how much damage is going to be done to the globe. You know, if, if we could hold to a one and a half percent increase over pre-industrial levels, um, or one and a half degree increase over pre-industrial levels, that means we get to, you know, roughly the level of destruction we have today of, you know, significant uh, suburbs of, of Boulder, you know, being decimated by fire and thousands of homes being lost, wildfires yeah. across Australia, you know, large swaths of drought today across the entire Western United States. You know, we're seeing drought around the world. Those sorts of changing weather patterns that cause, you know, mass devastation, but not things that are really, you know, causing places to be uninhabitable and millions and millions and millions of people being displaced from their homes. Right. When you get above that 1.5% into the, you know, the range of trying to stop it at the fallback plan of 2%, you start to get into those much more you know, societal level consequences that really, really big things start happening more and more frequently. You know, a, a tornado that takes out a town in uh, Kentucky won't be something that grabs headline news because it's happening every week um, if we right. get up into that 2% range. And then if we're not successful at holding at that 2% range and we get up into the 2.5-3% range, you know, then you're really, really talking about like, very large swaths of the earth that just aren't inhabitable um, because of climate change. So it's, it, you know, it's not a hard target per se, and I'm not a client scientist, so I'm, yeah. I'm getting more out of my area of expertise here, but, but the further you get up that scale, the more extreme weather events you have from those, those changes of, of climate. And, that, and that's important. 
Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I live in Miami and so I just, I mean, one of these places where I feel like, uh, just a slight change may make my city, the new Venice. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> so, I, I grew up in Florida and the, the highest hill in the state of Florida is 360 feet above sea level. And I, I remember actually one of the first climate things that I ever recognized was, uh, going to the, it was natural history museum, um, somewhere in Florida. And, they actually had a modeling thing. This was back in the early 80s where you could, sh it would show with lighting up what the state of Florida would look like with, you know, five feet, 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet of sea level rise. And it, it basically becomes a chain of islands that looks like the Florida Keys that sort of runs from Tallahassee down through Gainesville. And then everything else below that is underwater, you know, pretty quickly because there's no hills in that state. And yeah. you know, 20 feet of sea rise puts 90% of the land underwater. Um, so you feel it very quickly in a place like that. But well, you're 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 convincing me not to buy real estate here. <laughs> well, let, me, let me attach that to what I said about the regulatory thing too. There needs to be a consequence for buying real estate and building real estate, mm. and you know you see that through things like financial industry regulation and insurance. If if somebody is going to build a high rise in Miami today. Um, and obviously we saw a high rise collapse through you know, a combination yeah. of, of poor building codes and, um, and, you know, water related seepage and, and things, which may or may not be directly climate related, but shows you that how bad these things can affect it. Yeah. To build a high rise in Miami today, you better have insurance, you know, cause that building's intended for a 50 year life. You better have insurance that's going to make sure that you're financially protected from the fact that it's very, very likely that within 50 years, there's going to be significant sea level rise that's going to undermine that building and cause it to be uninhabitable. That's going to be crazy expensive. And it's going to double, triple, quadruple the cost of building that building. And by it being crazy expensive, because you have to get that, that climate change uh, insurance to you know, protect your risk, and the financial industry needs to require you to have that risk if you're going to borrow money to get the building, which are regulations that are working their way through things like the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and FDIC right now. Yeah. By making it incredibly expensive to get that insurance, it provokes the behavior that we need to provoke. A, that developer may build that building, you know, not right on the seafront, but a half a mile back with a nice view so that it's not threatened by, um, by storm surge every time a hurricane comes in. Or they may build the engineering protections to, you know, build up a 20-foot seawall, um, you know, and not have it sitting at, you know, six feet above sea level in a way that, that every storm surge is going to um, put that building at a risk that, you know, has to be evacuated. There's a danger of it collapsing. Yeah, I mean, you're highlighting all of these uh, tremendous challenges and things that clearly businesses have to work through. And, and those are probably some of the challenges and opportunities that APT faces. But let me change gears a little bit and talk about the last couple of years. You know, we've been living in this strange moment. How has that impacted the work that you're, you're doing uh, at APT and maybe uh, opportunities or, or uh, even also some of the challenges? Yeah, I mean, it, 
it, it is interesting because, you know, we as humans are adaptive. And when the pandemic started, I actually, I, I joined App a week before the world went into lockdown. So it was a very strange moment to join a new organization. <laughs> and meet your yeah, great, great to see everyone uh, go home. <laughs> I, uh, I'm only now meeting my colleagues in three dimensions for the first time. It's, it's a little weird. Yeah. But I actually predicted that we could probably run for about six months of working remotely before things just really started to get where they weren't sustainable anymore. And I, I've been incredibly um, pleased at both the, the pace that APT was able to, to pivot to being remote, um, in part because we'd already made a lot of investments in technology and things that allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. But then how well we've allowed, we've been able to get resilience into the way that especially our overseas operations that I, I didn't think would be able to, to be that resilient to remote work, um, mm. have not missed a beat, you know, in places where we do a lot of work, for example, on um, what's called in, indoor residual spraying for preventing the spread of malaria. So in areas that have high malaria, um, in order to prevent people from getting beaten by, bitten by malaria mosquitoes, which feed at night, um, there's a technique that you use of spraying the roof line of a house. But to do that, you literally have to go to the house. You have to take the furniture out and spray along the roof line with a, an insecticide that lasts for um, a, a long period of time mm-hmm. that kills the mosquitoes as they come into the house and they, they don't bite and they don't spray malaria. It reduces the what's called the malaria vector quite a bit. So we do this in literally um, millions of homes across Africa. You know, We'll take an entire county and have teams go through that county and do that. I frankly didn't think we were going to be able to do that in the middle of the pandemic. In, in mm. one country, in Uganda, we were about to start the spray season and the entire country was put on national lockdown. Nobody was allowed to use the roads. Nobody was allowed to use their home. And you know, we were extremely fortunate that the World Health Organization, even during the pandemic, said malaria is actually still an enormous threat and a greater threat than, than um, the pandemic, potentially. And all the things that we're doing for malaria prevention have to continue even in the pandemic. That's great. We're able to get special permissions to use the roads. We're able to mobilize um, and kept all of the spray campaigns going even during the pandemic. That was probably the thing that I'm most proudest of during the pandemic is that agility to be able to keep those really critical functions happening, yeah. um, pivot what we needed to pivot to being digital and remote and things like that. But but even those things that had to be tangible, finding a way to do it safely. That's um, excellent. You know, I was fearful of the same issues. Certainly in the States, we've noticed with healthcare issues in particular, that people kind of put off critical surgeries, et cetera, during COVID. And I was worried that maybe public policy had suffered as well. And so it's that's actually really great to hear that you guys continued forward on the efforts. And the other thing I'm really proud of is we do an enormous amount of work with health systems around the world and and helping those health systems get out just basic health care to the population. And those health systems are often a combination of public and private sector and other things. But because of that, one of the things we were called upon to do in many, many, many countries was help countries prepare for how they're going to deal with the pandemic. You know, Mm -hmm. how are they going to um, isolate um, patients that have um, COVID from those that have other diseases? How are they going to um, get the right PPE out to the healthcare workers? How are they going to get the public health messaging out about you know how to deal with social distancing and these things at the beginning of the pandemic? And then later, you know, how 
when vaccine finally became available to the developing world, which was much, much later than it was to the US and Europe, um, how are you going to get shots into the arms of people all over the country, which is a, you know, a huge logistical hurdle, um, yeah. particularly with cold chains and things like that. So we did, you know, an enormous amount of work across the globe in how do you do all those things. And I'm incredibly proud at how much our teams on the ground were able to, again, exercise that agility to figure out how can we help our, our health systems that we partner with to, um, to do as much as they can to mitigate the pandemic. And I, yeah, I don't I mean, want to... Just, just the logistics of those things alone are just so complicated, which is great to see that you guys have been able to do that. I mean, if you, as you look forward, Eric, into 2022, I am hoping that all these efforts that you guys were able to make sure happen during the last couple of years continue. But here we are in a number that sounds so futuristic, 2022. Uh, what does it look like for you? And what are the priorities, especially in the climate area? Yeah, in the climate area, you know, I'd say the first thing we're really focusing on is is kind of where climate meets some of the other areas of practice that we have, like um, health and housing and other areas. Um, the healthcare sector is actually a sector that hasn't really faced the climate crisis enough. Um, mm -hmm. For example, in Africa, um, there's an enormous amount of um, the healthcare sector that relies on diesel generators to uh, produce power you know, to do the basic things that allow babies to be born at night in villages, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we're really working to try to figure out how to get that, you know, very, very carbon unfriendly use of uh, um, diesel generation and other things out of the healthcare sector, how decarbonization of healthcare can um, really be brought to scale. That's, you know, the biggest thing that's on my mind right now. But beyond that, how can we, um, do things like mobilizing climate finance at enormous scale? How can we take advantage of the fact that in impact investment, for example, impact-driven investment, you know, we're seeing trillions of dollars now that are moving from the mainline capital markets, you know, kind of past ESG into really impact-driven capital. And that impact-driven capital is looking at how do we accomplish the sustainable development goals? How do we make sure that we're getting investment into climate mitigation and adaptation? How are we making sure that we're getting investments into the, the health systems that are going to get to human health? Um, how are we making sure that we're um, able to feed the world and get nutrition in the right place so that, you know, as pregnant women have babies and these babies grow, they're not stunted in their growth because they have poor nutrition in the first two years. So um, we're really working around the world on, on those really big challenges around mm. health and climate and agriculture, nutrition and uh, and that that really gets me excited and fired up because it it's allowing us to take, you know, what are in appear appear to be intractable problems, but yeah. apply solutions at enormous scale, you know, that really help them um, get resolved. So as we yeah, and I think I think it's really kind of that that idea of these interrelated efforts at scale, uh, and really kind of perhaps showing people how they're all interrelated is is quite critical, so that they yeah. continue to support and push it to the next level. Eric, it's been amazing to talk to you today. Uh, we've been speaking with Eric Redding. He is the Division VP for International Development at Apt Associates. We've been talking about the work that APT has been doing in the area of climate change, as well as kind of how that relates to broader initiatives in health, clean energy, governance, agriculture, you name it. And it's obviously a very 
I should say, important time, interesting time, challenging time uh, it, it, for all of those topics. And uh, it's been great to hear Eric and, and what he's been working on. Eric, if someone wanted to, to reach you and learn more about what APT and you are up to, uh, where should they find you? I'd say that the best place to find me is usually LinkedIn. I'm a, I'm a, a voracious networker in LinkedIn. So if you um, add me as a contact, I'll, I'll probably accept you unless you look like a, a spam telemarketer. Um, and I, you know, I respond to messages on LinkedIn really quickly. So uh, that's, that's always the best place to me. Well, thank you so much for being on Uncaged Day and we look forward to having you back. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Eric.